CD4 The luggage lurked in a ditch, watched without much interest by a man holding a water buffalo on the end of a piece of string. It was feeling ashamed and baffled and lost. It was lost because everywhere around it was familiar. The light, the smells, the feel of the soil. But it didn't feel owned. It was made of wood. Wood is sensitive to these things. One of its many feet idly traced an outline in the mud. It was a random, wretched pattern, familiar to anyone who's had to stand in front of the class and be scolded. Finally, it reached something that was probably as close as timber can get to a decision. It had been given away. It had spent many years trailing through strange lands, meeting exotic creatures and jumping up and down on them. Now it was back in the country where it had once been a tree. Therefore, it was free. It was not the most logical chain of thought, but pretty good when all you've got to think with are knotholes. And there was something it very much wanted to do. When you're ready, teach. Sorry, Genghis, I'm just finishing. Cohen sighed. The horde were taking advantage of the rest to sit in the shade of a tree and tell one another lies about their exploits, while Mr. Savaloy stood on top of a boulder, squinting through some kind of homemade device and doodling on his maps. Bits of paper ruled the world now, Cohen told himself. It certainly ruled this part of it. And Teach, well, Teach ruled bits of paper. He might not be traditional barbarian hero material, despite his deeply held belief that all headmasters should be riveted to a cowshed door, but the man was amazing with bits of paper. And he could speak Agatean. Well, speak it better than Cohen, who'd picked it up in a rough and ready way. He said he'd learnt it out of some old book. He said it was amazing how much interesting stuff was in old books. Cohen struggled up alongside him. What exactly are you planning, Teach? he said. Mr. Savaloy squinted at Hung Hung, just visible on the dusty horizon. Do you see that hill behind the city? he said. The huge, round mound. Looks like my dad's burial mound to me, said Cohen. No, it must be a natural formation. It's far too big. There's some kind of pagoda on top, I see. Interesting. Perhaps later I shall take a closer look. Cohen peered at the big round hill. It was a big round hill. It wasn't threatening him, and it didn't look valuable. End of saga, as far as he was concerned. There were more pressing matters. People appear to be entering and leaving the outer city, Mr. Savaloy continued. The siege is more a threat than a reality, so getting inside should not be a problem. Of course, getting into the forbidden city itself will be a lot more difficult. How about if we kill everyone, said Cohen. A good idea, but impractical said Mr. Savaloy, and liable to cause comment. No, my current methodology is predicated on the fact that Hung Hung is some considerable way from the river, yet has almost a million inhabitants. Predicated, yeah, said Cohen. And the local geography is, is quite wrong for artesian wells. Yeah, that's what I thought. And yet there is no visible aqueduct, you notice. No aqueduct, right, said Cohen. Probably flown to the rim for the summer. Some birds do that. 
which rather leads me to doubt the saying that not even a mouse can get into the Forbidden City, said Mr. Savaloy, with just a trace of smugness. I suspect a mouse could get into the Forbidden City if it could hold its breath. Or ride on one of them invisible ducks, said Cohen. Indeed. The cart stopped. The sack came off. Instead of the cheese grater Rincewind was secretly expecting, the view consisted of a couple of young, concerned faces. One of them was female, but Rincewind was relieved to see that she wasn't Pretty Butterfly. This one looked younger and made Rincewind think a little of potatoes. When you're on a desert island, your appetites can become a bit confused. How you are, she said in a fractured but recognisable Morporkian. We are very sorry. All better now? We speak you in language of Celestial City of Ankh More Pork, language of freedom and progress, language of one man, one vault. Yes, said Rincewind. A vision of Ankh More Pork's patrician floated across his memory. One man, one vote. Yes, I've met him. He's definitely got the vote. But. Extra luck to the people's endeavour, said the boy. Advance judiciously. He looked as though he'd been built with bricks. Excuse me, said Rincewind, but why did you... Uh, a paper lantern for ceremonial purposes. Uh, bale of cotton. Uh, rescue me. Uh, that is, when I say rescue, I suppose I mean, why did you hit me on the head, tie me up and bring me to wherever this is? Because the worst that could have happened to me in the inn was a ding round the ear for not paying for lunch. The worst that would have happened was an agonising death over several years, said the voice of Butterfly. She appeared round the cart and smiled grimly at Rincewind. Her hands were tucked demurely in her kimono, presumably to hide the knives. Oh, hello, he said. Great wizard, said Butterfly, bowing. I you already know, but these two are Lotus Blossom and three yoked oxen, other members of our cadre. We had to bring you here like this. There are spies everywhere. Timely demise to all enemies, said the boy, beaming. Good, yes, right, said Rincewind. All enemies, yes. The cart was in a courtyard. The general noise level on the other side of the very high walls suggested a large city. Nasty, certainly crystallised. And you've brought me to Hung Hung, haven't you, he said. Lotus Blossom's eyes widened. Then it are true, she said in Rincewind's own language. You are the great wizard. Oh, you'd be amazed at the things I can foresee, said Rincewind despondently. You two go and stable the horses, said Butterfly, not taking her eyes off Rincewind. When they'd hurried away with several backward glances, she walked up to him. They believe, she said. Personally, I have my doubts. But Lee Tin Weedle says an ass may do the work of an ox in time of no horses. One of his less convincing aphorisms, I always thought. Thank you. What is a cadre? Have you heard of the Red Army? No. Well, I heard someone shout something. According to legend, an unknown person known only as the Great Wizard led the first Red Army to an impossible victory. Of course, that was thousands of years ago, but the people believe that he, that is, you, will return to do it again. So there should be a Red Army ready and waiting. 
Well, of course, a man can get a little stiff after several thousand years. Her face was suddenly level with his own. Personally, I suspect there has been a misunderstanding, she hissed. But now you're here, you'll be a great wizard, if I have to prod you every step of the way. The other two returned. Butterfly went from snarling tiger to demure doe in an instant. And now you must come and meet the Red Army, she said. Won't they be a little smelly, Rincewind began, and stopped when he saw her expression. The original Red Army was clearly only a legend, she said, in fast and faultless Ankh-Morporkian. But legends have their uses. You'd better know the legend, great wizard. When one son Mirror was fighting all the armies of the world, the great wizard came to his aid, and the earth itself rose up and fought for the new empire. And lightning was involved. The army was made from the earth, but in some way driven by the lightning. Now lightning may kill, but I suspect it lacks discipline, and earth cannot fight. But no doubt our army of the earth and sky was nothing more nor less than an uprising of the peasants themselves. Well, now we have a new army, and a name that fires the imagination, and a great wizard. I don't believe in legends, but I believe that other people believe. The younger girl, who had been trying to follow this, stepped forward and gripped his arm. You're coming seeing Red Army now, she said. Forward motion with masses, said the boy, taking Rincewind's other arm. Does he always talk like that, said Rincewind, as he was propelled gently towards the door. Three yoked oxen does not study, said the girl. Extra success, attend our leaders. Tuppence a bucket well stamped down, said Rincewind encouragingly. Much ownership of means of production. How's your granny off for soap? Three yoked oxen beamed. Butterfly opened the door. That left Rincewind outside with the other two. Very useful slogans, he said, moving sideways just a little, but I would draw your attention to the famous saying of the great wizard Rincewind. Indeed, I am all ear, said Lotus Blossom politely. Rincewind, he say, goodbye. His sandals skidded on the cobbles, but he was already travelling fast when he hit the doors, which turned out to be made of bamboo and smashed apart easily. There was a street market on the other side. That was something Rincewind remembered later about Hung Hung. As soon as there was a space, any kind of space, even a space created by the passage of a cart or a mule, people flowed into it, usually arguing with one another at the tops of their voices over the price of a duck which was being held upside down and quacking. His foot went through a wicker cage containing several chickens, but he pressed on, scattering people and produce. In an ankh Morpork street market, something like this would have caused some comment. But since everyone around him already seemed to be screaming into other people's faces, Rincewind was merely a momentary and unremarked nuisance, as he half ran, half limped with one squawking foot past the stalls. Behind him, the people flowed back. There may have been some cries of pursuit, but they were lost in the hubbub. He didn't stop until he found an overlooked alcove between a stall selling songbirds and another purveying something that bubbled in bowls. His foot crowed. He smashed it against cobbles until the cage broke. The cockerel, maddened by the heady air of freedom, pecked him on the knee and fluttered away. There were no sounds of pursuit. However, a battalion of trolls in tin boots would have had trouble making themselves heard above a normal hung-hung street market. He let himself get his breath back. Well, he was his own man again. So much for the Red Army. 
Admittedly, he was in the capital city where he didn't want to be, and it was only a matter of time before something else unpleasant happened to him, but it wasn't actually happening at the moment. Let him find his bearings and five minutes start and they could watch his dust, or mud, and there was a lot of both here. So, this was Hung Hung. There didn't seem to be streets in the sense Rincewind understood the term. Alleys opened onto alleys, all of them narrow and made narrower by the stalls that lined them. There was a large animal population in the marketplace. Most of the stalls had their share of caged chickens, ducks in sacks and strange wriggling things in bowls. From one stall, a tortoise on top of a struggling heap of other tortoises under a sign saying, Three R each. Good for Ying. Gave Rincewind a slow, You think you've got troubles look. But it was hard to tell where the stalls ended and the buildings began in any case. Dried up things hanging on a string might be merchandise or someone's washing or quite possibly next week's dinner. The Hung Hungies were an outdoor kind of people. From the look of it, they conducted most of their lives on the street and at the top of their voice. Progress was made by viciously elbowing and shoving people until they got out of the way. Standing still and saying, uh, excuse me, was a recipe for immobility. The crowds did part, though, at the banging of a gong and a succession of loud pops. A group of people in white robes danced past, throwing fireworks around and banging on gongs, saucepans and odd bits of metal. The din contrived to be louder than the street noise, but only by very great effort. Rincewind had been getting the occasional puzzled glance from people who stopped screaming long enough to notice him. Perhaps it was time to act like a native. He turned to the nearest person and screamed, Pretty good, eh? The person, a little old lady in a straw hat, stared at him in distaste. It's Mr Wu's funeral, she snapped and walked off. There were a couple of soldiers nearby. If this had been Ankh Morpork, then they'd have been sharing a cigarette and trying not to see anything that might upset them. But these had an alert look. Rincewind backed into another alley. An untutored visitor could clearly find himself in big trouble here. This alley was quieter, and at the far end opened into something much wider and empty-looking. On the basis that people also meant trouble, Rincewind headed in that direction. Here at last was an open space. It was very open indeed. It was a paved square, big enough to hold a couple of armies. It had cherry trees growing along the verges, and given the heaving mob everywhere else, a surprising absence of anyone. You! Apart from the soldiers. They appeared abruptly from behind every tree and statue. Rincewind tried to back away, but that proved unfortunate since there was a guard behind him. A terrifying armoured mask confronted him. Peasant! Do you not know this is the Imperial Square? Was that a capital S on square, please? said Rincewind. You do not ask questions. Ah, I'll take that as a yes. So it's important then. Sorry, I'll just sort of, um, go away then. You stay. But what struck Rincewind as amazingly odd was that none of them actually took hold of him. And then he realised that this must be because they hardly ever needed to. People did what they were told. There's something worse than whips in the empire, Cohen had said. At this point he realised he should be on his knees. He crouched down, hands placed lightly in front of him. I wonder, he said brightly, rising into the starting position, if this is the time to draw your attention to a famous saying. Cohen was familiar with city gates. 
He'd broken down a number in his time by battering ram, siege gun, and on one occasion with his head. But the gates of Hung Hung were pretty damn good gates. They weren't like the gates of Ankh Morpork, which were usually wide open to attract the spending customer, and whose concession to defence was the sign, Thank you for not attacking our city, Bonum Diem. These were big and made of metal, and there was a guardhouse and a squad of unhelpful men in black armour. Teach? Yes, Cohen? Why are we doing this? I thought we were going to use the invisible duck the mice use. Mr Savaloy waggled a finger. That's for the Forbidden City itself. I hope we'll find that inside. Now, remember your lessons, he said. It's important that you all learn how to behave in cities. I know how to bloody well behave in cities, said Truckle the Uncivil. Pillage, ravage, loot, set fire to the damn place on your way out, just like towns, only it takes longer. That's all very well if you're just passing through, said Mr Savaloy, but what if you want to come back the next day? It ain't bloody well there next day, mister. Gentlemen, bear with me. You will have to learn the ways of civilization. People couldn't just walk through. There was a line, and the guards gathered rather offensively around each cowering visitor to examine their papers. And then it was Cohen's turn. Papers, old man. Cohen nodded happily and handed the guard captain a piece of paper on which was written, in Mr Savaloy's best handwriting, We are wandering madmen who have no papers. Sorry. The guard's gaze lifted from the paper and met Cohen's cheerful grin. Indeed, he said nastily. Can't you speak, grandfather? Cohen, still grinning, looked questioningly at Mr. Savaloy. They hadn't rehearsed this part. Foolish dummy, said the guard. Mr. Savaloy looked outraged. I thought you were supposed to show special consideration for the insane, he said. You cannot be insane without papers to say you're insane, said the guard. Oh, I'm fed up with this, said Cohen. I said it wouldn't work if we came across a thick guard. Insolent peasant. I'm not as insolent as my friends here, said Cohen. The horde nodded. That's us, Flatfoot. Bum to you. What? Extremely foolish soldier. What? The captain was taken aback. Deeply ingrained in the Agatean psyche was the habit of obedience. But even stronger was a veneration of one's ancestors and a respect for the elderly. And the captain had never seen anyone so elderly while still vertical. They practically were ancestors. The one in the wheelchair certainly smelled like one. Take them to the guardhouse, he shouted. The horde let themselves be manhandled and did it quite well. Mr Savaloy had spent hours training them in this, since he knew he was dealing with men whose response to a tap on the shoulder was to turn around and hack off someone's arm. It was crowded in the guardhouse, with the horde and the guards and with Mad Hamish's wheelchair. One of the guards looked down at Hamish, glowering under his blanket. What do you have there, grandfather? A sword came up through the cloth and stabbed the guard in the thigh. What? What? What's he say? He said, Arg, Hamish, said Cohen, a knife appearing in his hand. With one movement, his skinny arms had the captain in a lock, the knife at his throat. What? He said, Arg. What? I ain't even married. 
Cohen put a little more pressure on the captain's neck. Now then, friend, he said, you can have it the easy way, see, or the hard way. It's up to you. Blood-sucking pig! You call this the easy way? Well, I ain't sweating. May you live in interesting times. I would rather die than betray my emperor. Fair enough. It took the captain only a fraction of a second to realise that Cohen, being a man of his word, assumed that other people were too. He might, if he had had time, have reflected that the purpose of civilization is to make violence the final resort, while to a barbarian it is the first, preferred, only and above all most enjoyable option. But by then it was too late. He slumped forward. I always live in interesting times, said Cohen, in the satisfied voice of someone who did a lot to keep them interesting. He pointed his knife at the other guards. Mr Savaloy's mouth was wide open in horror. By rights, I should be cleaning this, said Cohen, but I ain't going to bother if it's only going to get dirty again. Now, personally, I'd as soon kill you as look at you, but teach here says I've got to stop doing that and become respectable. One of the guards looked sideways at his fellows and then fell on his knees. What is your wish, O master? he said. Ah, officer material, said Cohen. What's your name, lad? Nine orange trees, master. Cohen looked at Mr. Savaloy. What do I do now? Take them prisoner, please. How do I do that? Well, I suppose you tie them up, that sort of thing. Ah, and then cut their throats? No, no, you see, once you've got them at your mercy, you're not allowed to kill them. The Silver Horde, to a man, stared at the ex-teacher. I'm afraid... That's civilization for you, he added. But you said the sods haven't got any bloody weapons, said Truckle. Yes, said Mr Savaloy, shuddering a little. That's why you're not allowed to kill them. Are you mad? Got mad papers, have you? Cohen scratched his stubbly chin. The remainder of the guard watched him in trepidation. They were used to cruel and unusual punishment, but they were unaccustomed to argument first. You haven't had a lot of military experience, have you, Teach? he said. Apart from Form 4, not a lot, but I'm afraid this is the way it has to be done. I'm sorry, you did say you wanted me. Well, I vote we just cut their throats right now, said Boy Willie. I can't be having with this prisoner business either. I mean, who's going to feed them? I'm afraid you have to. Who, me? Not likely. I vote we make them eat their own eyeballs. Hands up all in favour. There was a chorus of assent from the horde, and among the raised hands Cohen noticed one belonging to nine orange trees. What are you voting for, lad? he said. Please, sir, I would like to go to the lavatory. You listen to me, you lot said Cohen. This slaughtering and butchering business isn't how you do it these days, right? And that's what Mr Savaloy says, and he knows how to spell words like marmalade, which is more than you do. Now, we know why we're here, and we'd better start as we mean to go on. Yeah, but you just killed that guard, said Truckle. I'm breaking myself in, said Cohen. You've got to creep up on civilization a bit at a time. I still say we should cut their heads off. 
That's what I did to the mad demon-sucking priests of E. The kneeling guard had cautiously raised his hands again. Please, master. Yes, lad? You could lock us up in that cell over there. Then we wouldn't be any trouble to anyone. Good thinking, said Cohen. Good lad. The boy keeps his head in a crisis. Lock him up. Thirty seconds later, the horde had limped off into the city. The guards sat in the cramped hot cell. Eventually one said, What were they? I think they might have been ancestors. I thought you had to be dead to be an ancestor. The one in the wheelchair looked dead, right up to the point where he stabbed four white fox. Should we shout for help? They might hear us. Yes, but if we don't get let out, we'll be stuck in here, and the walls are very thick, and the door is very strong. Good. Rincewind stopped running in some alley somewhere. He hadn't bothered to see if they'd followed him. It was true. Here, with one mighty bound, you could be free, provided you realised it was one of your options. Freedom did, of course, include man's age-old right to starve to death. It seemed a long time since his last proper meal. The voice erupted further down the alley, as if on cue. Rice cakes! Rice cakes! Get your nice rice cakes! Tea! Hundred-year-old eggs! Eggs! Get them while they're nice and vintage! Get your... Yeah, what is it? An elderly man had approached the salesman. Dibala son, this egg you sold me. What about it, venerable squire? Would you care to smell it? The street vendor took a sniff. Ah, yes, lovely, he said. Lovely? Lovely? This egg, said the customer, this egg is practically fresh. Hundred years old if it's a day, Shogun, said the vendor happily. Look at the colour of that shell, nice and black. It rubs off. Rincewind listened. There was, he thought, probably something in the idea that there were only a few people in the world. There were lots of bodies, but only a few people. That's why you kept running into the same ones. There was probably some mould somewhere. You saying my produce is fresh? May I disembowel myself honourably? Look, I'll tell you what I'll do. Yes, there seemed to be something familiar and magical about that trader. Someone had come to complain about a fresh egg, and yet within a couple of minutes he'd somehow been talked into forgetting this and purchasing two rice cakes and something strange wrapped in leaves. The rice cakes looked nice. Well, nicer than the other things. Rincewind sidled over. The trader was idly jigging from one foot to the other and whistling under his breath, but he stopped and gave Rincewind a big, honest, friendly grin. Nice ancient egg, Shogun? The bowl in the middle of the tray was full of gold coins. Rincewind's heart sank. The price of one of Mr. Dibala's foul eggs would have bought a street in Ankh-Morpork. I suppose you don't give, uh, credit, he suggested. Dibala gave him a look. I'll pretend I never heard that, Shogun, he said. Tell me, said Rincewind, do you know if you have any relatives overseas? This got him another look, a sideways one, full of sudden appraisal. What? There's nothing but evil blood-sucking ghosts beyond the seas. Everyone knows that, Shogun. I'm surprised you don't. Ghosts, said Rincewind. Trying to get here, do us harm, said Disembowel myself honourably. Maybe even steal our merchandise, give them a dose of the old firecracker, that's what I say. They don't like a good loud bang, ghosts. 
He gave Rincewind another look, even longer and more calculating. "'Where are you from, Shogun?' he asked, and his voice suddenly had a little barbed edge of suspicion. "'Best Pelagic,' said Rincewind quickly. "'That explains my strange accent and mannerisms that might otherwise lead people to think I was some sort of foreigner,' he added. "'Oh, Best Pelagic,' said Disembowel myself honourably. "'Well, in that case I expect you know my old friend Five Tongs who lives in the Street of Heavens, yes?' Rincewind was ready for this old trick. No, he said, never heard of him, never heard of the street. Disembowel myself honourably, Dybala grinned happily. If I yell foreign devil loud enough, you won't get three steps, he said in conversational tones. The guards will drag you off to the forbidden city where there's this special thing they do with... I've heard about it, said Rincewind. Five Tongs has been the district commissioner for three years, and the Street of Heavens is the main street,' said Disembowel myself honourably. "'I've always wanted to meet a blood-sucking foreign ghost. Have a rice cake.' Rincewind's gaze darted this way and that, but strangely enough the situation didn't seem dangerous, or at least inevitably dangerous. It seemed that danger was negotiable. "'Supposing I was to admit... I was from behind the wall, he said, keeping his voice as low as possible. Dybala nodded. One hand reached into his robe and in a quick movement revealed and then concealed the corner of something which Rincewind was not entirely surprised to see was entitled, What I Did. Some people say that beyond the wall there's nothing but deserts and burning wastes and evil ghosts and terrible monsters, said Dybala. But I say, what about the merchandising opportunities? A man with the right contacts, know what I mean, Shogun? He could go a long way in the land of blood-sucking ghosts. Rincewind nodded. He didn't like to point out that if you turned up in Ankh-Morpork with a handful of gold, then about three hundred people would turn up with a handful of steel. The way I see it, what with all this uncertainty about the Emperor and talk of rebels and that, long live His Excellency the Son of Heaven, of course, there might just be a niche for the open-minded trader. Am I right? Niche? Niche. Like, we've got this staff. He leaned closer. Comes out of a caterpillar's unidentified pictogram. It's called silk. It's... Yes, I know. We get it from Clatch, said Rincewind. Oh, well, there's this bush, you see. You dry the leaves, but then you put it in hot water and you drink... Yes, tea, said Rincewind. That comes from Hawandaland. D.M.H. Dybala looked taken aback. Well, we've got this powder. You put it in tubes. Fireworks. Got fireworks. How about this really fine china? It's in Ark Morpork we've got dwarfs that can make china you can read a book through, said Rincewind, even if it's got tiny footnotes in it. Dybala frowned. Sounds like you are very clever blood-sucking ghosts, he said, backing away. Maybe it's true that you are dangerous. Us? Don't worry about us, said Rincewind. We hardly ever kill foreigners in Ark Morpork. It makes it so hard to sell them things afterwards. What have we got you want, though? Go on, have a rice cake. On the pagoda. Want to try some pork balls? On a chopstick? Rincewind selected a cake. He didn't like to ask about the other stuff. You've got gold, he said. Oh, gold. It's too soft to do much with, said Dybala. It's all right for pipes and putting on roofs, though. Oh, 
I dare say people in Ark Moorpork could find a use for some, said Rincewind. His gaze returned to the coins in Dybala's tray. A land where gold was as cheap as lead. What's that? he said, pointing to a crumpled rectangle half covered with coins. D.M.H. Dybala looked down. It's this thing we have here, he said, speaking slowly. Of course, it's probably all new to you. It's called Marni. It's a way of carrying around your... I meant the bit of paper, said Rincewind. So did I, said Dybala. That's a ten Rhinu note. What does that mean, said Rincewind. Means what it says, said Dybala. Means it's worth ten of these. He held up a gold coin about the size of a rice cake. Why do you want to buy a piece of paper, said Rincewind. You don't buy it. It's for buying things with, said Dybala. Rincewind looked blank. You go to a market stall, said Dybala, getting back into the slow voice for the hard of thinking, and you say, Good morning, butcher. How much for those dog noses? And he says, Three rhino, Shogun. And you say, I've only got a pony, okay? Look, there's an etching of a pony on it, see? That's what you get on a ten rhino note. And he gives you the dog noses and seven coins in what we call change. Now, if you had a monkey, that's fifty rhino. He'd say, got anything smaller? And, but it's only a bit of paper, Rincewind wailed. It may be a bit of paper to you, but it's ten rice cakes to me, said Dybala. What do you foreign bloodsuckers use? Big stones with holes in them? Rincewind stared at the paper money. There were dozens of paper mills in Ankh Morpork, and some of the craftsmen in the Engravers Guild could engrave their names and addresses on a pinhead. He suddenly felt immensely proud of his countrymen. They might be venal and greedy, but by heaven they were good at it, and they never assumed that there wasn't any more to learn. I think you'll find, he said, that there's a lot of buildings in Ark Morpork that need new roofs. Really? said Dybala. Oh, yes, the rain's just pouring in. And people can pay? Only I heard... The Rincewind looked at the paper money again. He shook his head. Worth more than gold. They'll pay with notes at least as good as that, he said. Probably even better. I'll put in a good word for you. And now, he added hurriedly, which way is out? Dybala scratched his head. Could be a bit tricky, he said. There's armies outside. You look a bit foreign with that hat. Could be tricky. There was a commotion further along the alley, or rather a general increase in the commotion. The crowd parted in that hurried way common to unarmed crowds in the presence of weaponry, and a group of guards hurried towards disembowel myself honourably. He stepped back and gave them the friendly grin of one happy to sell at a discount to anyone with a knife. A limp figure was being dragged between two of the guards. As it went past, it raised a slightly blood-stained head and said, Extended duration to the... before a gloved fist smacked across its mouth. And then the guards were heading down the street. The crowd flowed back. Said DMH. Seems to be. Hello, where'd you go to? Rincewind reappeared from around a corner. DMH looked impressed. There had actually been a small thunderclap when Rincewind moved. See, they got another of them, he said. Putting up wall posters again, I expect. Another one of who? said Rincewind. Red Army. <laughs> oh. 
I don't pay much attention, said DMH. They say some old legend's gonna come true about emperors and stuff. Can't see it myself. He didn't look very legendary, said Rincewind. Ah, some people will believe anything. What'll happen to him? Difficult to say with the emperor about to die. Hands and feet cut off, probably. What? Why? Because he's young. That's leniency. A bit older and it's his head on a spike over one of the gates. That's punishment for putting up a poster. Stops him doing it again, see, said DMH. Rincewind backed away. Thank you, he said, and hurried off. Oh, no, he said, pushing his way through the crowds. I'm not getting mixed up in people's heads being chopped off. And then someone hit him again, but politely. As he sank to his knees and then to his chin, he wondered what had happened to the good old-fashioned, Hey, you. The silver horde wandered through the alleys of Hung Hung. I don't call this bloody well sweeping through a city, slaughtering every bugger, muttered Truckle. When I was riding with Bruce the Hoon, we never walked in through a front gate like a bunch of soppy mother. Mr. Uncivil, said Mr. Savaloy hurriedly, I wonder if this might be a good time to refer you to that list I drew up for you. What bloody list? said Truckle, sticking out his jaw belligerently. The list of acceptable civilised words, yes? He turned to the others. Remember I was telling you about civilised behaviour? Civilised behaviour is vital to our long-term strategy. What's a long-term strategy? said Caleb the Ripper. It's what we're going to do later, said Cohen. And what's that then? It's the plan, said Cohen. Well, I'll be f Truckle began. The list, Mr Uncivil. Only the words on the list, snapped Mr Savaloy. Listen, I bow to your expertise when it comes to crossing wildernesses, but this is civilization, and you must use the right words. Please. Better do what he says, Truckle, said Cohen. With bad grace, Truckle fished a grubby piece of paper out of his pocket, then unfolded it. Dang, he said. What's that mean? And what's this darn and heck? They are civilised swear words, said Mr Savaloy. Well, you can take them and... Ah, said Mr Savaloy, raising a cautionary finger. You can shove them up. Uh-huh. You can... Huh? Truckle shut his eyes and clenched his fist. "'Dang it all to heck!' he shouted. "'Good,' said Mr Savaloy. "'That's much better.' He turned to Cohen, who was grinning happily at Truckle's discomfort. "'Cohen,' he said, "'there's an apple stall over there. Do you fancy an apple?' "'Yeah, might do,' Cohen conceded, in the cautious manner of someone giving a conjurer his watch while remaining aware that the man is grinning and holding a hammer. "'Right.' Now then, cl I mean, gentlemen, Genghis wants an apple. There's a stall over there selling fruit and nuts. What does he do? Mr. Savaloy looked hopefully at his charges. Anyone? Yes? Easy. You kill that little... There was a rustle of unfolding paper again. Chap behind the stall. Then... No, Mr. Uncivil. Anyone else? What? You set fire to... No, Mr. Vincent. Anyone else? 
You're right. No, no, Mr. Ripper, said Mr. Savaloy. We take out some mu... Mu... He looked at them expectantly. Money, chorused the horde. And we... What do we do? Now we've gone through this hundreds of times. We... This was the difficult bit. The horde's lined faces creased and puckered still further as they tried to force their minds out of the chasms of habit. Gee, said Cohen hesitantly. Mr. Savaloy gave him a big smile and a nod of encouragement. Give it to Cohen's lips tensed around the word him. Yes, well done, in exchange for the apple. We'll talk about making change and saying thank you later on, when you're ready for it. Now then, Cohen, here's the coin. Off you go. Cohen wiped his forehead. He was beginning to sweat. How about if I just cut him up a bit? No, this is civilization. Cohen nodded uncomfortably. He threw back his shoulders and walked over to the stall where the apple merchant, who had been eyeing the group suspiciously, nodded at him. Cohen's eyes glazed and his lips moved silently as if he were rehearsing a script. Then he said, Ho, fat merchant, give me all your one apple and I will give you this coin. He looked around. Mr. Savaloy had his thumbs up. You want an apple, is that it? said the apple merchant. Yes. The apple merchant selected one. Cohen's sword had been hidden in the wheelchair again, but the merchant, in response to some buried acknowledgement, made sure it was a good apple. Then he took the coin. This proved a little difficult, since his customer seemed loath to let go of it. "'Come on, hand it over, venerable one,' he said. Seven crowded seconds passed. Then, when they were safely around the corner, Mr. Savaloy said, "'Now, everyone, who can tell me what Genghis did wrong?' "'Didn't say please?' What? said Mad Hamish. No. Didn't say thank you. What? No. Hit the man over the head with a melon and thumped him into the strawberries and kicked him in the nuts and set fire to his stall and stole all the money. What? Correct, Mr Savaloy sighed. Genghis, you were doing so well up till then. He didn't ought to have called me what he did. But venerable means old and wise, Genghis. Oh, does it? Yes. Well, I did leave him the money for the apple. Yes, but you see, I do believe you took all his other money. But I paid for the apple, said Cohen rather testily. Mr. Savaloy sighed. Genghis, I do rather get the impression that several thousand years of the patient development of fiscal propriety have somewhat passed you by. Come again? It is possible sometimes for money to legitimately belong to other people, said Mr. Savaloy patiently. The horde paused to wrap their minds around this too. It was, of course, something they knew to be true in theory. Merchants always had money, but it seemed wrong to think of it as belonging to them. It belonged to whoever took it off them. Merchants didn't actually own it. They were just looking after it until it was needed. Now, there is an elderly lady over there selling ducks, 
said Mr. Savaloy. "'I think the next stage... Uh, "'Mr. Willie, I am not over there. "'I am sure whatever you are looking at is very interesting, "'but please pay attention. "'Is to practice our grasp of social intercourse.' <laughs> said Caleb the Ripper. "'I mean, Mr. Ripper, that you should go and inquire "'how much it would be for a duck,' said Mr. Savaloy. <laughs> "'What?' "'And you are not to rip all her clothes off. "'That's not civilised.' "'Caleb scratched his head. "'Flakes fell out. "'Well, what else am I supposed to do?' "'Er, um, engage her in conversation.' "'Eh? "'What's there to talk about with a woman?' Mr. Savaloy hesitated again. To some extent, this was unknown territory to him as well. His experience with women at his last school had been limited to an occasional chat with the housekeeper, and on one occasion the matron had let him put his hand on her knee. He had been forty before he found out that oral sex didn't mean talking about it. Women had always been to him strange and distant and wonderful creatures, rather than, as the horde to a man believed, something to do. He was struggling a little. The weather? he hazarded. His memory threw in vague recollections of the staple conversation of the maiden aunt who had brought him up. Her health? The trouble with young people today? And then I rip her clothes off. Possibly. Eventually, if, if she wants you to. I might draw your attention to the discussion we had the other day about taking regular baths. Or even a bath, he added to himself. And attention to fingernails and hair and... and "'Changing your clothes more often.' "'This is leather,' said Caleb. "'You don't have to change it. It don't rot for years.' "'Once again Mr Savaloy readjusted his sights. "'He'd thought that civilization could be overlaid on the hoard like a veneer. "'He had been mistaken. "'But the funny thing,' he mused, "'as the hoard watched Caleb's painful attempts at conversation "'with a representative of half the world's humanity,' was that although they were as far away as possible from the kind of people he normally mixed with in staff rooms, or possibly because they were as far away as possible from the kind of people he normally mixed with in staff rooms, he actually liked them. Every one of them saw a book as either a lavatorial accessory or a set of portable firelighters, and thought that hygiene was a greeting. Yet they were honest, from their specialised point of view, and decent, from their specialised point of view, and saw the world as hugely simple. They stole from rich merchants and temples and kings. They didn't steal from poor people. This was not because there was anything virtuous about poor people. It was simply because poor people had no money. And although they didn't set out to give money away to the poor, that was nevertheless what they did. If you accepted that the poor consisted of innkeepers, ladies of negotiable virtue, pickpockets, gamblers and general hangers-on. Because although they would go to great lengths to steal money... They then had as much control over it as a man trying to herd cats. It was there to be spent and lost. So they kept the money in circulation. Always a praiseworthy thing in any society. They never worried about what other people thought. Mr Savaloy, who'd spent his whole life worrying about what other people thought, and had been passed over for promotion and generally treated as a piece of furniture as a result, found this strangely attractive. And they never agonised about anything, or wondered if they were doing the right thing. And they enjoyed themselves immensely. They had a kind of honour. He liked the horde. They weren't his kind of people. Caleb returned, looking unusually thoughtful. Congratulations, Mr Ripper, said Mr Savaloy, a great believer in positive reinforcement. 
She still appears to be fully clothed. Yeah, what did she say? said Boy Willie. She smiled at me, said Caleb. He scratched his crusty beard uneasily. A bit, anyway, he added. Good, said Mr Savaloy. She, uh, she said she, she wouldn't mind seeing me later. Well done. Er, uh, teach. What, what's a shave? Savaloy explained. Caleb listened carefully, grimacing occasionally. He turned around occasionally to look at the duck seller, who gave him a little wave. Cure, he said. Um, I don't know. He looked around again. Never seen a woman who wasn't running away before. Our women are like deer, said Cohen loftily. You can't just charge in. You've got to stalk them. <laughs> Sorry, said Caleb, catching Mr Savaloy's stern eye. I think perhaps we should end the lesson here, said Mr Savaloy. We don't want to get you too civilised, do we? I suggest we take a stroll around the Forbidden City, yes? They'd all seen it. It dominated the centre of Hung Hung. Its walls were forty feet high. There's a lot of soldiers guarding the gates, said Cohen. So they should. A great treasure lies within, said Mr Savaloy. He didn't raise his eyes, though. He seemed to be staring intently at the ground as though searching for something he'd lost. Why don't we just rush up and kill the guards? Caleb demanded. He was still feeling a bit shaken. What? Don't be daft, said Cohen. It'd take all day. Anyway, he added, feeling a little proud despite himself. Teach here is going to get us in on an invisible duck. Ain't that so, Teach? Mr Savaloy stopped. Ah, oh, Eureka, he said. That's a Phoebean, that is, Cohen told the horde. It means, give me a towel. Oh, yeah, said Caleb, who had been surreptitiously trying to untangle the knots in his beard. And when were you ever in Ephib? Went bounty hunting there once. Who for? You, I think. Huh, <laughs> did you find me? Dunno, nod your head and see if it falls off. Ah, oh, gentlemen... Behold, Mr. Savaloy's orthopaedic sandal was prodding an ornamental metal square in the ground. Behold what? said Truckle. What? We should look for more of these, said Mr. Savaloy, but I think we have it. All we need to do now is wait until dark. There was an argument going on. All Rincewind could make out were the voices. Another sack had been tied over his head while he himself was tied to a pillar. Does he even look like a great wizard? That's what it says on his hat in the language of ghosts. So you say. What about the testimony of four big sandal then? He was overtaxed. He could have imagined it. I did not. He came out of thin air, flying like a dragon. He knocked over five soldiers, and three Maximum Lux saw it also, and the others. And then he freed an ancient man, and turned him into a mighty fighting warrior. And he can speak our language, just as it says in the book. All right, supposing he is the great wizard, then we should kill him now. In the darkness of his sack, Rincewind shook his head furiously. Why? He will be on the side of the Emperor. 
but the legend says the great wizard led the Red Army. Yes, for Emperor Wan Sang Mira, it crushed the people. No, it crushed all the bandit chiefs, then it built the empire. So, the empire is so great, untimely demise to the forces of oppression? But now the Red Army is on the side of the people, maximum advancement with the Great Wizard. The Great Wizard is the enemy of the people. I saw him, I tell you, a legion of soldiers collapsed with the wind of his passage. The wind of his passage was beginning to worry Rincewind as well. It always tended to when he was frightened. If he is such a great wizard, why is he still tied up? Why has he not made his bonds disappear in puffs of green smoke? Perhaps he is saving his magic for some even mightier deeds. He wouldn't do firecracker tricks for earthworms. <laughs> and he had the book. He was looking for us. It is his destiny to lead the Red Army. Shake, 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 shake. We can lead ourselves. Nod, 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 nod. We don't need any suspicious great wizards from illusionary places. Nod, 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 nod. So we should kill him now. Nod, nod, no, shake, 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 shake. Ha! He laughs at you with scorn. He waits to make your head explode with snakes of fire. Shake, 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 shake. You do know that while we're arguing, three yoked oxen is being tortured. The people's army is more than just individuals, Lotus Blossom. In the fetid sack, Rincewind grimaced. He was already beginning to take a dislike to the first speaker, as one naturally does with people urging that you be put to death without delay. But when that sort of person started talking about things being more important than people, you knew you were in big trouble. I'm sure the great wizard could rescue three yoked oxen, said a voice by his ear. It was Butterfly. Yes, he could easily rescue three yoked oxen, said Lotus Blossom. Huh, you say? He could get into the forbidden city? Impossible. It's certain death. Nod, nod, nod. Not to the great wizard, said the voice of Butterfly. Shut up, hissed Rincewind. Would you like to know how big the meat cleaver is that the two fire herb is holding in his hand? whispered Butterfly. No, it's very big. He said that going into the Forbidden City is certain death. No, it's only probable death. I assure you, if you run away from me again, that is certain death. The sack was pulled away. The face immediately in front of him was that of Lotus Blossom, and a man could see a lot worse things with his daylight than her face, which made him think of cream and masses of butter and just the right amount of salt. Much later, Rincewind had to have therapy for this. It involved a pretty woman, a huge plate of potatoes and a big stick with a nail in it. One of the things he might see, for example, was the face of two-fire herb. This was not a nice face. It was podgy and had tiny little pupils in its eyes and looked like a living example of the fact that although the people could be oppressed by kings and emperors and mandarins, the job could often be done just as well by the man next door. Great wizard, <laughs> two fire herb said now. He can do it, said Lotus Blossom, and cream cheese thought Rincewind and maybe coleslaw on the side. He is the great wizard come back to us. Did he not guide the master through the lands of ghosts and blood-sucking vampires? Oh, I wouldn't say that, Rincewind began. 
Such a great wizard allowed you to bring him here in a sack, said Two Fireherb, sneering. Let us see him do some conjuring. A truly great wizard would not stoop to doing party tricks, said Lotus Blossom. That's right, said Rincewind, not stoop. Shame on Herb to suggest such a thing. Shame, Rincewind agreed. Besides, he will need all of his power to enter the Forbidden City, said Butterfly. Rincewind found himself hating the sound of her voice. Forbidden City, he murmured. Everyone knows there are terrible snares and traps and many, many guards. Snares? Traps? Why, if his magic should fail him because he did tricks for Herb, he would find himself in the deepest dungeon, dying by inches. Inches? Um, which particular inches? So much shame to two fire Herb. Rincewind gave her a sickly grin. Actually, he said, I'm not that great. I'm a bit great, he added quickly as Butterfly began to frown, but not very great. The writings of the Master say that you defeated many powerful enchanters and resolutely succeeded in dangerous situations. Rincewind nodded glumly. It was more or less true, but most of the time he hadn't intended to, whereas the Forbidden City had looked, well, forbidden. It didn't look inviting. It didn't look as though it sold postcards. The only souvenir they were likely to give you would be, perhaps, your teeth in a bag. Um, I expect this oxen lad is in some deep dungeon, yeah? The deepest, said Two-Fire Herb. And you've never seen anyone again? Who's been taken prisoner, I mean. We've seen bits of them, said Lotus Blossom. Usually their heads, said Two-Fire Herb, on spikes over the gates. But not three yoked oxen, said Lotus Blossom firmly. The great wizard has spoken. Uh, actually, I'm not sure I actually said... But you have spoken, said Butterfly firmly. As Rincewind got accustomed to the gloom, he realised that he was in some storeroom or cellar. The noise of the city came, rather muffled from grills near the ceiling. It was half full of barrels and bundles, and every one of them was a perch for someone. The room was crowded. The people were watching him with expressions of rapt attention, but that wasn't the only thing they had in common. Rincewind turned right round. Who were all these children? he said. This said Lotus Blossom, is the hung-hung cadre of the Red Army. Two-fire Herb snorted. Why did you tell him that, he said. Now we may have to kill him. But they're all so young. They may be underprivileged in years, said Two-fire Herb, but they are ancient in courage and honour. And experienced in fighting, said Rincewind hotly. The guards I've seen do not look like nice people. I mean, do you even have any weapons? We will wrest the weapons we need from our enemies, said Two-Fire Herb. A cheer went up. Really? How do you actually make them let go, said Rincewind. He pointed to a very small girl who leaned away from his digit as though it were loaded. She looked about seven and was holding a toy rabbit. What's your name? One favourite pearl, Great Wizard. And what do you do in the Red Army? I have earned the medal for putting up of wall posters, Great Wizard. 
What, like slightly bad things please happen to our enemies? That sort of thing. Um, said the girl, looking imploringly at Butterfly. Rebellion is not easy for us, said the older girl. We don't have experience. Well, I'm here to tell you that you don't do it by singing songs and putting up posters and fighting barehanded, said Rincewind. Not when you're up against real people with real weapons. You... His voice trailed away as he realised that a hundred pairs of eyes were watching him intently and two hundred ears were carefully listening. He played back his own words in the echo chamber of his head. He'd said, I'm here to tell you. He spread out his hands and waved them frantically. That it's... it's not up to me to tell you anything, he said. That is correct, said Two-Fire Herb. We will overcome because history is on our side. We will overcome because the great wizard is on our side, said Butterfly sharply. I'll tell you this, shouted Rincewind. I'd rather trust me than history. Oh, shit, did I just say that? So you will help three yoked oxen, said Butterfly. Please, said Lotus Blossom. Rincewind looked at her and the tears in the corners of her eyes, and the bunch of awed teenagers who really thought that you could beat an army by singing rousing songs. There was only one thing he could do, if he really thought about it. He could play along for now, and then get the hell out of it at the very first opportunity. Butterfly's anger was bad, but a spike was a spike. Of course he'd feel a bit of a heel for a while, but that was the point. He'd feel a heel, but he wouldn't feel a spike. The world had too many heroes and didn't need another one. Whereas the world had only one Rincewind, and he owed it to the world to keep this one alive for as long as possible. There was an inn. There was a courtyard. There was a corral for the luggages. There were large travelling trunks, big enough to carry the needs of an entire household for a fortnight. There were merchant sample cases, mere square boxes on crude legs. There were sleek overnight bags. They shuffled aimlessly in their pen. Occasionally there was the rattle of a handle or the crack of a hinge, and once or twice the snap of a lid and the bonk-bonk-bonk of boxes trying to get out of the way. Three of them were big and covered with studded leather. They looked like the kind of travelling accessories that hang around outside cheap hotels and make suggestive remarks to handbags. The object of their attention was a rather smaller trunk with an inlaid lid and dainty feet. It had already backed into a corner as far as it could go. A large spiked lid creaked open a couple of times as the largest of the boxes edged closer. The smaller box had retreated so far its back legs were trying to climb the corral fence. There was the sound of running feet on the other side of the courtyard wall. They got closer and then stopped abruptly. Then there was a twang such as would be made by an object landing on the taut roof of a cart. For a moment, against the rising moon, there was the shape of something somersaulting slowly through the evening air. It landed heavily in front of the three big chests, bounced upright and charged. Eventually various travellers spilled out into the night, but by then items of clothing were strewn and trampled around the courtyard. Three black chests, battered and scarred, were discovered on the roof, each one scrabbling on the tiles and butting the others in an effort to be the highest. Others had panicked and broken down the wall and headed out across the country. Eventually all but one of them were found. The Horde were feeling quite proud of themselves when they sat down for dinner. They acted, Mr Savaloy thought, rather like boys who'd just got their first pair of long trousers, which they had done. Each man had one baggy pair of same, plus a long grey robe. We've been shopping, 
said Caleb proudly. Paying for things with money. We dressed up like civilised people. Yes, indeed, said Mr Savaloy indulgently. He was hoping that they could all get through this without the horde finding out what kind of civilised people they were dressed up as. As it was, the beards were a problem. The kind of people who wore these kind of clothes in the Forbidden City didn't usually have beards. They were proverbial for not having them. Actually, they were more properly proverbial for not having other things, but as a sort of consequence of this lack, also for not having beards. Cohen shifted. Itchy, he said. This is pants, is it? Never worn them before. Same with shirts. What good's a shirt that's not chain mail? We did very well, though, said Caleb. He had even had a shave, obliging the barber, for the first time in his experience, to use a chisel. He kept rubbing his naked, baby-pink chin. Yeah, we're really civilised, said Vincent. Except for the bit where you set fire to that shopkeeper, said Boy Willie. No, I only set fire to him a bit. What? said Mad Hamish. Teach? Yes, Cohen? Why did you tell that firework merchant that everyone you knew had died suddenly? Mr Savaloy's foot tapped gently against the large parcel under the table, alongside a nice new cauldron. So he wouldn't get suspicious about what I was buying, he said. Five thousand firecrackers? What? Well, said Mr Savaloy, did I ever tell you that after I taught geography in the Assassin's Guild and the Plumber's Guild, I did it for a few terms in the Alchemist's Guild? Alchemists? Loonies, the lot of them, said Truckle. But they're keen on geography, said Mr Savaloy. I suppose they need to know where they've landed. Eat up, gentlemen, it may be a long night. What is this stuff? said Truckle, spearing something with his chopstick. Um, chow, said Mr Savaloy. Yes, but what is it? Chow, a kind of, um, dog. The horde looked at him. There's nothing wrong with it, he said hurriedly, with the sincerity of a man who had ordered bamboo shoots and bean curd for himself. I've eaten everything else, said Truckle, but I ain't eating dog. I had a dog once. Rover. Yeah, said Cohen. The one with the spiked collar. The one who used to eat people. Say what you like. He was a friend to me, said Truckle, pushing the meat to one side. Rabid death to everyone else. I'll eat yours. Order him some chicken, Teach. Ate a man once, mumbled Mad Hamish. In a siege it were. You ate someone, said Mr Savaloy, beckoning to the waiter. Just a leg. That's terrible. Not with mustard. Just when I think I know them, Mr Savaloy mused. He reached for his wine glass. The horde reached for their glasses too, while watching him carefully. A toast, gentlemen, he said, and remember what I said about not quaffing. Quaffing just gets your ears wet. Just sip. To civilization. The horde joined in with their own toasts. Pacharn cough. Your feet shall be cut off and be buried several yards from your body so your ghost won't walk. Lie down on the floor and no one gets hurt. 
May you live in interesting pants. What's the magic word? Gimme. Death to most tyrants. What? End of CD 4